But if you have your Bible, please, um, if you want to open it to the letter of Timothy, we're going to be reading from 1 Timothy, this, 1 Timothy this morning. Each week we have teaching from the Bible. And actually for the past two weeks, we've been talking about money, our possessions, our wealth. And it's not been overly comfortable, I don't think, because we've been sitting under the extreme example of what happened in the early church and the radical generosity of the first Christians and trying to show that we think this is the sort of lifestyle as Christians we should aspire to and desire in God. Um, at least I found it quite challenging. What we learned last week, and if this is your first Sunday and you've not, you don't really know much about Christianity and you're exploring it, almost what you need to know is that we think the resurrection of Jesus from the dead has completely overhauled reality and transformed the way that we think and live and behave. And the last two weeks, we've been showing how the resurrection of Jesus, his physical resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday, as, as outrageous as that sounds, has completely ch changed our lives and transformed us. And if you're new to Christianity, my encouragement to you would be explore that. Ask, that. ask yourself that question, did this happen? Because if it did happen, then the world is a different place perhaps from the one that you think it is. But if it didn't happen, then we're all wasting our times and, and we're deceiving ourselves and we need to know. And so we would appreciate your help in that as well. Um, but we're talking about money again today. Uh, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, we love talking about our wealth and possessions. The reason for that is because, well, three reasons for that is because number one, um, Almost one of the most difficult things that a Christian does throughout their life is, is, is what they spend their money on. One of the hardest things to get right as a Christian is our spending life. And also one of the most um, powerful forces in a person's life is their money and their possessions. And Jesus said he's come to set us free, that we might live life and life to the full. And one of the key things that stops Christians living like that is our wealth, our money, the possessions, how they take a grip on us. So that's the first reason we're talking about it is because it's good for us to get this right, to think about it. The second reason we're talking about it is because as a church, we've been dreaming and we've been thinking about the things that God might be calling us to do in this town and around the towns around us and all that we might want to believe God for for the future. And we've realized we can't do that unless God does a massive work on our hearts and makes us a radically generous community and a, a people who are who are willing to trust him in radical exploits of faith and adventure. And the third reason we're talking about this is because a Christian is not, a Christian is meant to be someone who embodies God to the world. Jesus, when he taught his famous Sermon on the Mount, he didn't go around telling everybody, you must obey because the rules say so. Instead, he went around telling everybody, you should live like this because God is like that. You should be generous because God is generous. And to convince you of that more fully, uh, we're going to watch just a quick five-minute video uh, looking at the, the way that generosity as a theme is tracked throughout the Bible's story. So if you're new to, new to Christianity, the Bible is one big story, begins in a garden in Eden in the Old Testament, and God in his promises acts in the world all the way through to the coming of Jesus and the church after that. Uh, so we're going to watch this video together, and then I'll come up and read from the Bible. So let's, we're going to read together from 1 Timothy 6, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a, to a man named Timothy, uh, who was his, essentially his, his trainee in the Christian faith, and he wrote a letter to him to tell him how to live, and this was the first letter he wrote, hence 1 Timothy. And we're going to be looking at the subject together today of how to be rich, how to be rich. Not how to get rich, how to be rich. Let's read together from 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 onwards. 
Now, there is great gain. There's great gain. There's great wealth to be had. You'll be rich. There is great gain, he says, in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or troubles. And then skipping down to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them or command them, command them not to be haughty, not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is God's word. Now, riches are mentioned several times in the short passage that we said, we read. Verse 6, there's great gain, a term of riches, and godliness with contentment. Uh, those who desire to be rich fall into trouble, the love of money. Uh, he then says in verse 17, as for the rich, command them this, to not set their hopes on this, but instead on God who richly provides. Generosity, as the, story, as the video made clear for us, is a story. And we all live by different stories or narratives that we play. For the past hundred years, as a Western civilization, we had three main stories, fascism, communism, and liberalism. Um, fascism and communism have fallen by the wayside, but lib- liberalism, by and large, the, the story that the highest value in the world is freedom, and we should just let people be free and do whatever they want, that story is the story that, in many ways, our society and the people who live in our communities operate by that story. Well, another story is the Christian story which is a story not of scarcity, not even just of you know, throwing off shackles and doing whatever you want, but it's a story of coming under the good rule of a good, generous God who richly provides for us. And the reason Paul is telling Timothy to teach people how to handle their wealth, he says, command the rich in this present age, he tells them, teach people how to handle their wealth. Why? Because he knows that riches are deceptive and riches, money, is dangerous. Verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Money produces trouble. The love of money is, the root of, is a root of all kinds of evil, he says. Now, my friend was telling me just this week that he grew up in Zimbabwe, where the government built a bridge from one side of a river to another. But halfway across, they ran out of funds and just stopped. And so for years growing up, there was a bridge that everybody knew wasn't finished. Except, uh, that would have been okay perhaps, except for the fact that the government didn't put any road signs on the road warning people that the bridge wasn't finished. And so tragically, a number of people over the years drove over the bridge to their own death. The bridge wasn't finished. The bridge was dangerous, but no one told them about it. Your money is dangerous, and yet very few people teach us how to handle our money, how to handle our wealth. When you got your first pay packet, it didn't come wrapped in yellow and black tape saying, warning, this has the potential to destroy your life. It didn't. Instead, your first pay packet came to you, and you thought, I have power. 
I can do whatever I want. Oh, it's gone. Wait till next week. I have power. And we live in that cycle of power and powerlessness until we go, I can borrow money. And then I can punish my future self rather than my present self. And so that's how we've learned to handle our wealth is, is poorly a lot of the time. But the relevancy of today and why today matters to you and me hangs on verse 17 and whether or not we think it's written for us or someone else. This is what he says in verse 17. He tells Timothy, now, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be, he goes on to tell them what to teach them. He says, as for the rich in this present age, which if you're anything like me, I read those words and I go, okay, it's not relevant to me. (laughs) He's talking about rich people because the rich is anyone other than me. It's not me. The rich is Bill Gates. Bill Gates needs to read this. Or the rich is my neighbor who has a bigger house than me. They need to read this. The rich is that family that goes on a lot more holidays than we do. They need to read this. But no. So who is the the riches? Well, I have some good news for you this morning, and you're going to thank me for this. Good news. If you earn more than £15,000 in a year, you are in the top 5% wealthiest people on the planet. What's more, if you earn more than £25,000 in a year, you're in the top 1% of earners on the planet. Wow, isn't that fantastic? You, or many of you, are filthy rich. Give yourselves a pat on the back. Well done. You've made it into the rich club or to the rich list. You, in fact, you and I would feature in the Times Rich List at 61 millionth in the world. In a world of however many billion people there are, you and I, by and large, would feature in the number 61 millionth richest people on the planet. Good news. You don't seem too excited about that. So let me tell you, or you don't seem convinced. Let me show you something else. So look at this graph. This is from the, uh, the Office of National Statistics, um, founded on the internet, so it must be true. Um, this, this is the UK um, listed into its wealthiest areas. Uh, London comes close, but the wealthiest part of the country is the southeast. It's us. We live in the wealthiest part of a very wealthy nation. Congratulations. I don't know what you did to get in, but you are in. Well done. Uh, In the UK, um, the average earnings per full-time employee in the UK is £585 per week. That's the average. In the southeast, the average is £613. So if you live in the southeast, you earn, on average, more than other people in the rest of the country. Party poppers and streamers are needed, I think. That's exciting. Um, the median household wealth, so the middle average again, household wealth in our country, is £387,000. That includes anyone, if you have a mortgage, that's included in your wealth. If you have a pension, if you have any savings, annual salary, it's included in your wealth. The average wealth of a home, a homeowner or a household in this country is £387,000. The average cost of a house in Seaford is £358,000, which means if you own your own home in Seaford, you are above average in the richest part of a wealthy nation. Congratulations. I think that's fantastic news. Now, my guess is that the reason we're not all getting very excited about this right now is because we don't feel rich. Am I wrong? We don't feel rich. You see, there is a difference between being rich and feeling rich. Those are two very different things. 
I was to ask any of you, how much money would you need in order to feel rich and be rich? Almost all of us would say, a little bit more. <laughs> a little bit more. That's how much is enough. And there's two good reasons why you don't feel rich. Uh, the first is the reason of comparison. You are as wealthy as the people you compare yourself to. And often, because we, are, we have friends, and particularly, it's a challenging thing, actually, being in a church... Um, we are a broad spectrum of, of the community from, from people who, who don't have much money to those who have a lot of money. And so being in a church like this, there's always going to be people around you in your immediate vicinity that you can compare yourself to and say, I'm not rich, they're rich. I don't feel rich, they're rich. That's number one. We don't feel rich because of who we compare ourselves to. And yet, if you go to another part of the world and compare yourself to them, you will feel very wealthy. This happened to us when we first got married. We, uh, Amy and I saved up our pennies for a year and a half, and we uh, managed to get enough money to go to India for a week. It was fantastic. Um, but it was uncomfortable. Because if you've ever holidayed to a, a developing country, anywhere in the world that's a developing country, you know that the people around you have a lot, more, a lot less money than you. And we spent most of our two weeks there feeling guilty, feeling bad that we could come and then go, and in fact, the money that we'd saved up, we felt like we should be giving it all away to the people around us. And so we came back home and compared ourselves to our neighbors and went, phew, we're not rich, thank goodness. That's the first reason is who we compare ourselves to. And the second reason you don't feel rich is, has to do with this word, margin. Your margin is the difference between the amount of money you bring in and the amount of money you have to let go of due to bills and various things. Your margin is the amount of extra money you have after it's come in and it's gone out for your bills. That's your margin, your buffer, what you have to live off. And because many of us don't have much margin, we don't have much control each month over how much we spend and where we spend it, we don't feel rich. There's a number of reasons why we feel like this. In part, it's because we're not very good at budgeting. And so we just spend, 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 and then we go, oh, I have very little money. I'm poor. Things are tight. Things are hard. I can't have Sky Sports and Sky Movies. I'm poor. Uh, and that's why we run the CAP budgeting course, to help you get more margin so that you feel richer. Another reason why we don't have much margin is, has to do with this other word, upgrade. Rich people do this thing where they take a perfectly good working phone that still has value and they take it to a shop, or they put it in a drawer, and they go to a shop, or they go online, and they order another phone that does the same thing, but has fewer scratches on it. Or what rich people do is they take a perfectly good working car, they drive it to a garage, they then hand it over for some money, and hand over more money to get another car that does exactly the same thing. That's what rich people do, and by upgrading our lives, we reduce the margin all the time. Now, I know there's perfectly sensible reasons why people upgrade. I'm just saying the, fact, the very fact that you can choose to upgrade is an indication that you are perhaps rich. You see, regardless of who you compare yourself to or what your margin is in your week-to-week -week or month-to-month -month money, if you have indoor plumbing, central heating, electricity, and a steady supply of food in your fridge, you are one of the richest people who has ever lived. Let's read verse 17 again then with the lens that perhaps this applies to you and me. Because the truth is, 
the people that Paul's writing to, the rich in the church, were very poor by even the poorest in the room's standards. Your standard of living is much higher, much greater than theirs was. Okay, verse 17 again. As for the rich in this present age, teach them, charge them, instruct them, command them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. What Paul does is he tells Timothy, tell the rich two things. Tell them two don'ts and then tell them two do's that are linked to them. We're going to look at them. Command them. When, when he says command the rich, many of us expect him to say command the rich to give their money away because money's bad and people shouldn't have lots of money. If you're rich, you're a bad person. That's what we might expect him to say. He doesn't say that. See, a lot of us think that wealth is wrong or immoral. It's not. It's neutral. What you do with your wealth is the issue here. And actually, it's not money that is the root of all kinds of evil. We read it. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. That's what the Apostle Paul says. So money isn't evil. In fact, this is quite challenging and something that also is quite liberating. In verse 17, he says, set your hopes on God who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. I find that both liberating and challenging. It's liberating because I, spent, I have spent and spent a lot of my time feeling guilty about the amount that I have. I have a home. I have heating. I have food. I feel guilty. I feel like I shouldn't in a world where so few people live as comfortably as I do. And many of us live under a sense of guilt about how much we have. Well, God, the Bible says, richly provides us with everything to make us feel guilty. No, richly provides us with things to enjoy. God gives gifts. He's a father. He gives gifts to his children to enjoy. If you gave your kids a present and they spent all their time feeling guilty that they had a nice present and their, kid, their friends at school didn't, you would think, son, I just want you to enjoy the thing I've given you. So it is challenging. And so being wealthy isn't wrong, is what he says. But he does tell them what to do. And he says, number one, don't be arrogant about your wealth. And why would he say that? Well, he knows, just like you and I know, he knows that money and having money um, lies to you and it, it can cause you to think that you are better than other people because you have more money than them. Money causes people to feel proud, to look down on others and think to themselves, God must love me more because I have more money than them. Or I must be better than them because I have more money. I must work harder than other people because I have more money. And that just isn't true. Of course, there are instances where hard work produces a lot of reward. But those two things are not a straightforward correlation. It's just the fact that in an economy like this, some skills are valued more and people pay more highly for some skills than they do for other skills. It is strange to me to live in a world where bankers are paid more than nurses. People who care day in, day out for other human beings and pour themselves out in service to others are undervalued in monetary terms. They're not better than them. They're not worse than them. But money has that effect on people. It can make people feel like they're better. So he tells them, teach the rich, command the rich not to be proud of their wealth. And the second thing he tells them is, command the rich um, 
not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of wealth. Why does he say that? Uncertainty. Wealth, money, it is unstable, prone to devaluing, decaying, diminishing. You, if you grew up in Zimbabwe or you live in Zimbabwe, you know this. You would take a, a product off the shelf and it was worth £10, say. You'd go to the till and by the time you get there, it's worth £15. Now, how did that happen? I went from here to here. It's an unstable economy. But the truth is all wealth, all riches are as unstable as that. It's just in some instances it's more obvious. In 2008, we got a shock as a country with the credit crunch as we learned that money devalues and can lose its value overnight. People lost millions of pounds in a matter of hours because it's unstable. Now, I know um, this past week I sat with an accountant to talk about the, the church finances, and he gave me an education in what's called depreciation, which was so interesting I thought I'd share it with you. <laughs> In accountancy terms, everything in the world has a value, and as soon as you've paid for it, from the moment you've bought it and exchanged money for it, it begins to depreciate and lose wealth. This building, we bought it for so much, even in the year that we've had it, it's now plummeted in its value. It's depreciated. Accountants write that in real terms and give it real figures, and they get all excited about their sums. They do that in real terms to try to account for what the rest of us know. Life devalues. Life depreciates. If you leave anything out in the sun for long enough, it will depreciate. It will destroy. It will go moldy. You know, last night's dinner at the restaurant was worth this much, but if you left it on the plate and came back to it today, and it would be worth a lot less. It would be disgusting. I know uh, one... One pastor does this thing where he, he, he stood up with a plate of food in his hand and said, this is, our, this is the dinner that we had as a family a, a week or so ago. It's wrapped in bubble wrap. He says it is decaying now. It is moldy. It is going rotten. And so he teaches his people something I thought was quite amusing, so I thought I'd share it with you. He says this, Paul's point to Timothy and the Bible's point to Christians is this. You've got to start giving while you're living because what you're holding is molding. You've got to start giving while you're living because what you're holding is molding. That's obvious when it comes to food, but it's true of all of our resources. How much can you take with you? Nothing. How much did they, when someone dies, how much did they leave behind? All of it. It's all molding, it's all decaying. And that's what he says. Tell them not to put their hope in their wealth because of that. And why else does he say that? He says that because he knows that money makes our hopes migrate. Our hopes migrate. You become a Christian. You put your hope in God. I think I can trust God with my future, my life, my everything. I'm clinging to God. I get money, and what it says is, don't hope in him. Hope in me. He's not, I mean, he's not going to provide a house for you. He's not going to provide shelter for you. You've got to eat. Provide, I provide for you. Hope, our hope migrates. But money, the Apostle Paul says, is a bad foundation. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It's a bad foundation to try to build your life on. And yet so many of us, we live our lives in such a way that we say, I must work hard to get more money, to become more secure, more stable. What's underneath that is the story that you're believing, that you cannot put your hope in God. It's like the video says. You've believed the story, the lie that God cannot be trusted. 
As a kid growing up, I used to play this board game called Escape from Atlantis. Anybody know that board game, Escape from Atlantis? Just me, them. Uh, it's a really good game. And what it was, this game, you'd build an island, and every time you rolled the dice, you'd take a piece of the island away, and it would, dissolve, it would diminish into the sea. Every turn you'd go, the, the island would devolve, dissolve into the sea. Money is that kind of a foundation. It gradually erodes and molds and rots. So those are the don'ts, he tells him. He says, don't be arrogant, don't be proud, and then don't put your hope in wealth. And so here we come to the positive, how to be rich. How should we be then in the world? And those two, the two do's that he's going to share with us correlate to the two don'ts. We read in verse 18, rich people, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they, they may take hold of that which is truly life. What he says is two things. They are to serve and they are to give. That's how you be rich well. Learn to serve, learn to give. And they correlate because he says, don't be proud. Don't think you're better than other people. Instead, if you're rich, serve other people. So it's an opposite to being proud. It's a way of destroying pride. And then he secondly says, don't put your hope in your wealth. Instead, give it away, which will help you put your hope back into God. Money makes your hope migrate Giving it away calls your hope home. Come back, hope. Come back. Put your hope in God. You do that every time you give. Whether you're giving sacrificially or generously or whatever, every time you give, you're calling your hope home. Put your hope in God. Don't put your hope in that. And we need to hear this because not only are we rich, we are a, we are a society of people that are being lied to all the time. Karl Marx famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Religion is a drug for controlling people. We're not in a particularly religious society anymore. And yet there is a strong opiate at work that controls the masses. What controls the masses, I would argue, in our society is the opiate, the drug of experience. Have more experiences. Spend more money on this. You need this. YOLO. You only live once. Um, to spend and have experience after experience after experience. You deserve a holiday. You deserve a McDonald's. You deserve, you deserve, you deserve. And because we're so drugged by the drug of experience, we think, I will do whatever I can and spend whatever I need to to get every experience I can. And people's biggest fear is, what if I die and I haven't done this and this and this and this and this? And so we chase those things with our lives. And decisions that we make, hours that we work, all go towards that end. Be careful. It's a drug and it isn't the path to ultimate life. Many of us know that. The Bible says that. Because ultimately it's God who provides, not Tesco. Ultimately it's God who is a firm foundation for our lives, not our boss or our employer or our salary or whatever it is. I've learned this when it comes to cars because um, rather um, graciously God has given us as a family three cars over our time of being motorists, drivers. Um, the first time I learned this, I was a, a, a student. I had no money because I'd spent it all on you know, unnecessary items that I don't care about now. Um, and I was praying, saying, God, I need a car. I don't have a car. I've got no money for a car. A few days after praying, a friend picks up the phone and says, I have a car to give away. I'd like to give it to you. Do you want the car? I said, yes, please. Thank you very much. That was car number one. 
That started a break because he gave me a banger, let's be honest. It started a break, spent a lot of money on it, and so I was praying, God, I don't know what to do. And then someone else came to me, my family this time, and said, we want to give you some money to buy a car. I said, wow, thank you very much. God, you provide cars, sometimes miraculously through prayer, sometimes through people. But my favorite one was while we were driving this car. This car was all right. Uh, it was a Peugeot 306. I liked it. It was uh, my first little runaround. It was nice. We, Amy and I were invited to dinner at a Nigerian family's house in the church in Eastbourne years ago. And we had a nice time. We got on well, and then we drove away and thought nothing of it. Uh, like two months later, I got a phone call from Femi, the, uh, the Ni- Nigerian guy that we'd been around for dinner. And he said to me, he said, uh, uh, could you come around? We have something we'd like to give you. Again, what do you need to give me? Like a CD? Like, okay, that'd be lovely. Can't you just give it to me on church on Sunday? But all right. So I went around his house, and um, he said, uh, he said, oh, Jez, uh, the, Lord, the Lord is giving you a car. He's sitting outside on the drive. Uh, he was from Nigeria, um, n- not Wales. <laughs> he said, the Lord is giving you a car. He's sitting outside on the drive. I said, what? I don't understand. He said, when you came, oh, don't, won't do the accent. Um, he said, when you came around for dinner, I don't want to offend any more people than I have done. Um, when you came around for dinner, you drove away, and as me and my wife were waving you goodbye, I felt the Lord say to me, buy him a car. And we thought, he has a car, but we thought the Lord said, buy you a car. So we thought, okay, we'll buy you a car. And so he said, this is an amazing story, he said, we decided that we would spend £1,000 on you for a car. Like get a nice car rather than just a banger, which is lovely. He said, we found a car that we wanted. We drove to London to pick up the car to buy it. And we went to hand the man the money. But the man said, I'm a Christian, and I feel God's told me to give you this car for free. So they received a car for free, drove it home, and gave it to us for free. And for a few years, we had a nice Honda Civic. It was lovely. I've learned that in motoring, God can be trusted. My car breaks, my first port of call is, God, I know you give cars. Can I have a car? When you're generous, your hope comes home and you realize, oh, God, you can be trusted. What Paul says is learn to serve others, learn to give. And something else we need to be aware of, we need to beware of the consumption assumption. The consumption assumption. And the consumption assumption is this, just because something has come to you does not necessarily mean it is for you. Just because something has come to you doesn't necessarily mean it is for you. And so when things come to you, whatever they are, possessions or money, even even money in exchange for work, when something comes to you, the first question should be, God, is this for me or is this for someone else? How can I use this to bless other people with the things that I've been given? And to help us with that, I want to suggest two things. I mentioned the opiate of experience, and and often attached to the opiate of experience, the drug of experience, we're we're in a society where people create what's called bucket lists, things to do before you kick the bucket, things to do before you die. Instead of a bucket list, I want to suggest that we develop a chuck it list. That's not very nice, is it? Like a list of things that we want to give away in our life. And these are things that we don't necessarily have right now. But I dare you to sit down and say, God, across my lifetime, I'd love to give this away. I'd love to give a car away. I'd love to give a holiday away. I'd love to give money away. I'd love to give 50 pounds away to someone who I know that I could encourage. I'd love to give 1,000 pounds. I'd love at the next church gift day, God, to be able to give a lot of money towards it. Those are good prayers to pray. I'd love to give a house away. 
Anton Deck gave a house away on uh, TV last night, but it wasn't generous because it wasn't theirs in the first place. It was a PR stunt, but that's a different point. Um, instead of a bucket list, develop a chuck it list. You might want to use that phrase. Um, also, we're in a society that is always telling us to develop a rainy day fund. Savings is good. There's nothing wrong with a rainy day fund. But I would suggest, as well as a rainy day fund, why don't you develop a give-it-away fund? Money over and above what you give away to God normally as an act of worship, over and above that you set aside to think, I can give it to anyone in need. Because generosity isn't about how wealthy you are. It's about your heart and where your hope lies. I know some people in this church who wouldn't be described as the wealthiest people in the church, but I know that they are some of the most generous people in the church. Many of us have been recipients of their generosity and kindness because they've made a give it away fund. And every week, it seems, I'm overhearing them, overhearing someone say, oh, so-and-so gave me this, so-and-so did that for me. Because they don't just have rainy day funds, they have give it away funds. And it's living like this, the Bible says, that is a firm foundation Verse 19, living like this, you will store up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future. That's what Paul tells Timothy to tell others. Living like this will mean that you develop a firm foundation for your future. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. No, it's blessed to receive, but it's more blessed to give. It will be better for you. And actually, in a lot of the things that Jesus taught, his encouragement was always, do this in such a way that your father sees and he can reward. Stop looking to yourself for rewards and stop working out just good, shrewd investments for reward. Instead, the ultimate investment, Jesus says, is, well, he says, pray in secret so no one else can see you praying. In other words, don't be a hypocrite and just perform religious deeds. Why? So that your father who's in secret can see. Jesus says, when you fast, don't make a big song and dance about it. Just fast between you and God so that it's not people's praise that rewards you. It's God who rewards you. When you give, Jesus says, give, but don't make a big song and dance out of it. Live generously, trusting that God will reward you. You see, if you make a big song and dance about your life and your deeds, if you put everything you do on social media, you get the affirmation from the people that you've told. That is your reward. Jesus instead says, get rewards from God. Live a life of faith that says, I'll give away, and I have no idea how I'm going to survive, but God will reward me. I was talking about this with a friend just yesterday, actually. He said that he has been given a large inheritance and he doesn't put it in property, like a lot of his friends owns property. He has a large inheritance and it's in his savings, and he doesn't know what to do. So he's seeking wise advice from financial advisors. But we were talking about this, and he said, it feels difficult to just put that in an offering. Because to just give it away would be hard, and I fear that it would be unwise. As we talked about it, we realized that although giving large sums of money away is unwise by the world standard, Jesus commends the type of life that says, I'm letting go of all my worldly security in the hope that my Father will provide. That's a life of faith. That's a life of risk. It's the life that Jesus calls us to. That's how it is that Jesus can look at people in the eye and say, go sell it, all of your possessions and follow me. And they say, I can't do that. How would I eat? How would I live? And that's the point. Jesus wants you to see that he can be trusted, that his father can be trusted. You won't get every experience in your life sorted if you give your money away. You won't have as many holidays. 
but you will know God providing for you through life, and you will learn the ultimate lesson in life. The most important things that really matters is that God is good and can be trusted, and he does provide, and he will provide, and he will carry you ultimately to full life with him in the new creation. That's how Paul ends this, this encouragement to Timothy. He says, giving away will store up a good foundation so that they may take hold of that which is truly life the ultimate experience that you and I should be running for is the experience of true life, full life. And that isn't found in drugs or alcohol. It isn't found in the latest Apple product or the latest car, electronic or otherwise. The ultimate experience, true life, is finding that your foundations are built on God and he provides for you richly everything for your enjoyment. That frees you from this world and its kingdom and its ways of thinking. That enables you to trust God with the things that he's given you. Jesus said that true life, eternal life, is knowing the true God, knowing the Father and knowing Jesus Christ whom he sent. We're going to respond together this morning by breaking bread, by having communion together. And every time we do this, it's a reminder to us of God's generosity, that he didn't withhold even his own son but gave us himself so that his body could be broken on the cross. We break his body with bread. Together we gather, we eat the bread, we remind ourselves. And he provides us with, in communion, wine, which is a symbol of feasting and celebration as a reminder and an encouragement that this is not your eternal home. There is a feast in the new creation and a celebration to come. So we look back and we break the body of Jesus and we think of God's generosity to us and we drink the wine and we remember God's generosity to that he's going to provide for us with an ultimate party at the end of all things. I've said too much. Enough. Let's pray.